Okay, the, uh, I think the um, passage uh, we're preaching on today is, or looking at is Romans 14, uh, verses 13 to 23. Uh, in fact, I'm sure it is, because we're, we're working through Romans, and this is where we're up to. Uh, so we're in this section of Romans where Paul, uh, he's dealing with a, a local problem that was in the um, church at Rome, and applying the gospel, showing how what Christ has done uh, shapes our interactions uh, with each other as um, the body of Christ, and how that can, uh, how applying the gospel can uh, lead to uh, unity uh, together. So let's uh, keep reading about uh, this situation from verse 13 of chapter 14. Okay, this is God's word. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And uh, let's ask uh, God for help to understand it. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your spirit who is the one who enlightens our minds to your word uh, so that we can understand it and apply it. And we pray, Heavenly Father, for the spirit's work now uh, that you would help us, Lord, to, uh, to submit our hearts to your word. And we pray, Father, that you would speak to us through this and where we are uh, out of step with your word, we pray that you'd call us back, uh, that we might walk in your ways. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder what kind of um, community you would rather be a part of. Would you rather be a part of a community characterised by fighting and division or one characterised by respect and unity? Now, I think the answer is uh, pretty obvious in that one. Uh, but if you've ever been part of a small community, you know, such as a, a church like this, uh, you, you know that unity is one of those things that it's easy to take for granted and it's easy to lose. Uh, it's amazing how differences of opinions and um, small disagreements can easily spiral out of control and turn into something very ugly, uh, even into ruined relationships, and sometimes even outright division. 
Now, occasionally that can happen in the church. But when it does, you know, it's rarely over important things like core doctrines of the Bible or issues of morality. Most of the divisions in the church occur over what we call disputable matters. And disputable matters, uh, if you weren't here last week or if you've um, forgotten since last week, disputable matters are opinions and practices that the Bible doesn't bind us one way or the other, but where some Christians still feel hang-ups about. Uh, So, for example, a disputable matter uh, would be the style of um, clothing that we wear. Uh, you know, there are broad principles in the Bible about what should govern the way we dress, such as uh, respect and modesty. But within those broad principles, there's actually a lot of freedom. Uh, you can really wear whatever you like uh, within that, those principles. However, sometimes Christians can struggle with that freedom and still feel the need for there to be additional rules about how we dress and uh, we'll we'll want to force those rules on others. And uh, it might even be over, you know, how formal or informal we dress within a church gathering. And so that would be an example of a disputable matter. Another example would be the uh, instruments that we, musical instruments that we use in the church. Uh, Again, it's, it's something that God doesn't prescribe, doesn't tell us what musical instruments should accompany our singing, in public worship, and so in one sense, we're free to use whatever we like. However, some Christians still feel uncomfortable with certain instruments, perhaps because of cultural or religious associations, or even just because it's something that we're not used to. But this is what I mean by disputable matters. They're opinions and practices of which the Bible doesn't bind us one way or the other, and yet, some Christians can still feel certain hang-ups and still feel uncomfortable embracing the freedom that we actually have. And as we saw last week, Paul calls believers who, who, who struggle to embrace freedom on these disputable matters, he calls them weak Christians. And he's not saying that as a, as a put-down. He's not saying that they're somehow you know, lesser of a Christian. He's saying it to indicate that their understanding about how to apply the Bible in these matters is not as well formed as those that he labels as strong. And as we also saw last week, many of us actually fall into the category of um, weak because uh, many of us have uh, opinions about uh, matters that have far more to do with um, either culture or tradition or our upbringing than they do with the um, teaching of the Bible. And see, it's easy for us to assume that the way we're used to doing things and what we're comfortable with, it's easy to assume that that's the only way to do something. And that's why arguments over disputable matters often get very messy uh, because it's not really about one person arguing for what's right and the other one wrong. It's, It's an area of freedom. And often in the argument, that aspect of, is, is actually missed. So the question is, how do we navigate disputable matters without letting them divide us? Okay, is it possible to have unity 
in a church, even if there is not uniformity on every opinion and practice. And that's what Romans 14 is dealing with. Okay, that was an issue in the church at Rome over what food to eat. Uh, can be an issue in churches today. And, and see, Romans 14, it shows us how to navigate these sort of things, how, how we can have differences of opinions on disputable matters without letting those differences bring division. And so far in Romans 14, we've seen uh, that, that we're to have a certain attitude toward those who have differences of opinion. And the attitude is to be one of welcoming, accepting, embracing them, not seeing them as being outsiders or not belonging, but rather as belonging. We're all one family in Christ. And that, of course, that attitude, of course, is based on the gospel because the gospel is that rather than despising or condemning us, God has welcomed us in Christ and therefore we're to have that same attitude toward one another, not despising or condemning those who have differences, but rather welcoming uh, them in. Now, in this second half of um, Romans 14 that we're looking at today, from verse 13, this is where Paul gets a little bit more practical on this issue. And you can actually see the transition from the attitude to the practice in verse 13. And verse 13 is this transitional verse. So have a look at verse 13 there. Uh, so Paul says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. So that's the attitude that he's just talked about. But then he says, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. And so this is now the practice that he's going to unpack for us. And so this, this passage, uh, which is what the sermon is going to also be about, is about not being a stumbling block. But when it comes to disputable matters, we must not cause others to stumble by our actions. Uh, but rather we are to build others up and we are to do whatever leads to peace. So that's the sermon. It's about not stumbling others. And to do that, we need to keep in mind three things that Paul uh, talks about in this passage. And here's the first one. The first thing we need to think about is the issue of conscience. Okay, when, when it comes to not stumbling others, we need to keep in mind the issue of conscience. And we see that in verse 14. It's also um, repeated again down in verse 22 and 23. Now, the word conscience isn't used, but it's what Paul is talking about. And what we see here is in, in any disputable matter, to avoid causing someone to stumble, we need to think about the other person's conscience. Okay, so let's look at that. Paul writes, verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. See, this is the issue of um, conscience. Now, just, we need to just back up a bit. Remember what the actual issue was in the Church of Rome. Remember how there was a, a big dispute over what you were and, were and weren't allowed to eat. And uh, the, the church in Rome had Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, and each of them had grown up with a very different uh, approach to um, lifestyle and, and what food you ate. And uh, the Jewish Christians, they, you know, were used to be in a system where they had all of those laws about what is clean and unclean food. And 
What does Paul say about that? He doesn't tiptoe around the issue. He just tells them bluntly in verse 14 that nothing is unclean in itself. And so what's Paul doing there? He's just repeating the words of Jesus that are recorded in Mark 7 where Jesus declared all foods clean. And the reason Jesus did that is because with his coming is the end of all of those ceremonial laws which were about what things are clean and unclean. You know, there was, God had, had listed all of these different aspects of life to help the Israelites think about what it meant to dwell in the presence of God. To be in God's presence, you had to be clean. You had to be cleansed. And all of those laws were teaching the Israelites that. But see, with the coming of Jesus, the function of that law, all those laws, was then fulfilled because in Christ, what do we have? We have the true cleansing. Through Jesus' death, we're cleansed of everything that can defile us. We are now clean in him. And therefore, the purpose of all those laws in the Old Testament, those clean and unclean laws, they're all fulfilled in Christ and therefore done away with. Christians don't need to keep those clean laws anymore. Uh, in practice, that means we're free to eat whatever we like. And Paul doesn't shy away from affirming that. But at the same time, he acknowledges that not everyone is comfortable with that, that people have grown up in contexts where they saw otherwise. And he recognises that for some people it takes a long time to, for, for that conviction to develop uh, in their conscience. In fact, you can see how, how difficult it must have been for Jewish Christians in that first century when you consider someone like the Apostle Peter. Now, the Apostle Peter, he was there on that day when Jesus said, all foods are clean. He heard Jesus. I'm sure they talked about it a whole lot more. But then when you read the book of Acts, you got many, many years later, uh, Jesus wants Peter to go and share the gospel with a Gentile man named Cornelius. And Peter, you know, he's not going to have a bar of that because he's got all his, you know, rules about how life should go for a Christian, a Jewish Christian. And so in order to get Peter to do what Jesus wants him to do, Jesus had to give Peter a vision not once, not twice, but three times to get through to Peter, don't call something that's clean, unclean. Now, the vision of all the animals, and Jesus says, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter tells Jesus, no, not me. You know, you don't do that to Jesus. You don't tell Jesus no, because he's, he's king. Anyway, Jesus gets through to Peter. Peter goes to Cornelius' house. They even eat together. So finally, Peter gets it. But you can see how deep that conviction must have been for Jewish believers in that first century when it came to um, what is the right thing to think. And Paul, uh, he, he understands that, right? It didn't seem to be as big a struggle for Paul as it was for Peter, but Paul understands it, and that's why he writes in verse 14 uh, that, he, you know, even though nothing is unclean in itself, but then Paul says this, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. Now, what does he mean by that? Is he saying you can just make up your, whatever rules you like? No, no, he's talking about the issue of conscience. Uh, the conscience. Now, this is how it works. 
if I am convinced in my conscience that something is wrong, then for me that is wrong to do. Right? Even if it's something that God says is okay to do, if I believe in my conscience that it's not okay to do, then for me to go on to do that, that would actually be wrong. And that's a, a principle that Paul uh, unpacks a bit more down at the end of the passage. So if we uh, flick down to verse 23, um, Paul writes, Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. And that's the issue there. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And so here we can see that is this this principle of the conscience, or we can see here the role that our conscience plays in our obedience to God. And so what is your conscience? Your conscience, it's kind of like an inner alarm inside of you that, that goes, the alarm goes off if you're about to do something that deep down feels wrong. And uh, according to the Bible, uh, this, this inner alarm um, actually do you know Pinocchio? Anyone remember that, that movie? And there was that little cricket guy who sang that song, um, you know, always obey your conscience. Your conscience is your guide. It's actually wrong because according to the Bible, our conscience can be broken. It can be distorted, uh, which means that on the one hand, our conscience can be desensitized. And we know that because in 1 Timothy um, verse uh, chapter 4, verse 2, um, Paul talks about people whose consciences have been seared, which means they're, they're desensitized. And what that actually means, it means that if you continually go against your conscience, if you continually do something that you feel is wrong, eventually your conscience just doesn't work anymore. It becomes desensitized. So it's like the alarm should be going off, but it no longer does. So that's one way our conscience can be distorted. Another way it can be distorted is that it can be oversensitized, where the alarm is going off when it actually shouldn't be going off. And you can see that was the issue with the Jewish believers in the Roman church. You know, their conscience would be going into meltdown if someone served bacon at the church lunch. And so by telling the whole congregation in the Church of Rome, that all foods are clean, what's Paul doing? He's seeking to help the weaker believers to recalibrate their conscience. And, and that's actually one of the purposes in Christian growth. One, one of the aims of Christian growth is actually to have our conscience recalibrated by the gospel so that it, so that it does go off when it should go off, you know, over clear transgressions of God's word, but then it doesn't go off when it shouldn't. And that is, you know, the gospel frees us from all of the, the extra rules and traditions that we may have grown up with but are not actually in the Bible. And see, to remain bound by those things is not the freedom that God wants us to enjoy in Christ. But see, that recalibration for some people can take a long time. And so we need to be sensitive to each other's conscience. Some people's conscience allows them to do certain things and others restricts them. And so in matters of freedom, there will always be those whose conscience is more sensitive to our own. And as we'll now see, that has to shape the way we interact with each other on these matters. And so that brings us to the second point. 
Okay, the first point was the issue of conscience. The second point is the danger of unrestrained freedom. The danger of unrestrained freedom. And that's the main burden of this passage. See, just because we're allowed to do something, it doesn't mean we should always do it. Uh, those who are strong in faith, those whose consciences have been recalibrated by the gospel, are not to exercise their freedom in such a way that would cause a weaker believer to stumble. And that, that was what the headline of this passage is in verse 13. You know, never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Paul repeats that idea down in verse 20. So if you look uh, halfway through verse 20, it says, everything indeed is clean, um, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Now, what does it mean to stumble someone? Well, in the context of this passage, it means to pressure someone to go against their conscience. And we must never do that. We must never pressure someone to do something that they're not comfortable with. Uh, we, and, and we must never practice our freedom in such a way that, that puts pressure on people to do something that they you know, inwardly feel like it wouldn't be honouring to the Lord for them to do it. And in some ways that might not feel like a big deal. You know, so what if we pressure someone to go against their conscience? Their conscience is misinformed anyway. Seems like a very small thing. But that's not the way Paul sees it in this passage. In fact, he uses extremely strong language to talk about the damage that we can do to a fellow believer if we pressure them to go against their conscience. And you can see that in verse 15. <clears throat> uh, in verse 15 where uh, Paul says, uh, if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Now listen to this. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. That sounds very serious. In fact, there is some debate over what this word destroy um, actually means. Um, maybe it's one of these disputable matters. But there is debate because some actually take it to mean eternal destruction. You know, to destroy means that this, this believer who's caused to stumble, he, he eventually gives up the faith altogether. And so that on that final day, on Judgment Day, he finds that he's not in Christ and he's separated for God from all eternity in hell. That's, people take that word destroyed to mean that, which is you know, obviously the most serious uh, thing that you ever face. However, verse 20 seems to suggest that it's not talking about eternal destruction in that sense, but rather talking about someone's progress in the faith. Because in verse 20, uh, it says, Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. So it's like Paul is qualifying what he said earlier. So what is the work of God in a believer? The work of God in a believer is to make someone like Christ. And so for us to stumble a weaker believer in one of these disputable matters, that can destroy them in that way. It can destroy their progress in the faith. And, and the way it works is, you know, if they sin against their conscience in a disputable matter, then what's to stop them from sinning in all kinds of matters? You know, they could get into the habit of going against their conscience 
uh, which could cause them to really lose their way. But what this shows us is that causing a fellow believer to stumble, it's not just causing someone to be offended. So that's, that's how it's sometimes taken, you know, that we're not allowed to um, cause an offence to someone else. But it, it's deeper than that, though. And the reason is, is because plenty of believers can get offended by another believer's actions, but not feel that inward pressure to um, go along with it. You know, not, not feel the pressure to go against their conscience. Now, the stumbling is deeper than that. To cause someone to stumble is when you exercise your freedom in such a way that someone feels led to go against their conscience. And they might look up to you as someone that they respect and think, well, if they're doing that, then maybe living, you know, sin isn't such a big deal after all. Maybe I can just do whatever I like. And so the people we especially need to be careful with in this regard would be those who are new to the faith or those who might be new to the faith from a different cultural background where there's, they have a lot of different ways of thinking about uh, life and how to do life. And so we need to be careful, though, that we don't cause others to stumble. Now, just to give you a personal example of this uh, from my own life, I'm going to use the example of alcohol. And it actually comes up in the passage because verse 21, Paul mentions the drinking of wine. Now, when it comes to alcohol, it's pretty clear that the Bible doesn't forbid the consumption of alcohol. What it does forbid is drunkenness. But drinking in moderation is a matter of freedom. Um, Paul even encourages Timothy to um, drink a little wine to settle his stomach uh, when he wrote to him in, in 1 Timothy. But see, not, everyone, not every Christian is comfortable with that freedom. And uh, I grew up in a home where uh, drinking any alcohol was considered wrong. Um, and, and actually, I, I really respect my parents for that stand that they took. And the reason I respect them so much is because my dad, he grew up in a home where his grandfather was the town drunk. And so that, that was a really sad, wasted life. And so, you know, as he grew up seeing that, having witnessed that firsthand, he purposed in his heart pretty young that he's never going to touch alcohol. Now, on my mum's side uh, was the Temperance Society. Uh, if you've ever heard of the Temperance Society, it was a movement to, to try to stop all of the, uh, the, the violence that was committed through you know, drunken behaviour. Um, but that, that Temperance Society was um, all about promoting abstinence. And I also grew up in a church that reinforced that, that view that to drink any alcohol was, was actually considered wrong. It's not a biblical view, um, but as you can see, it was certainly deeply ingrained into my conscience as I grew up. Now, when I went to uni, uh, I became a Christian through the witness of a, an older student um, in my course named John. And uh, John was like a mentor to me. I um, highly respected him. He, he seemed to have wisdom well beyond his um, age. And so you can imagine the shock that I had one day when I walked into a room and here's John sharing a beer with some other students. And I walked up to this, this group of students uh, who, who said, yeah, yeah, how's it going? You know, have a beer. And they gave me a beer. And you could imagine what was going through my mind. On the one hand, the alarm bells are going off. My conscience says, no, this is wrong. 
And yet at the same time, I deeply respected John. And so I thought, well, maybe it's okay after all. But see, John had enough wisdom to see that I was uncomfortable. And so he left his beer on the table. He took me for a walk outside and he explained to me that I must never do anything against my conscience. And so I took John's advice on that. Uh, didn't have a beer. Um, not, not only did John give me that advice, the whole time we were in uni, I don't think he ever once had another beer the whole time. And even though he explained to me that, you know, the Bible allows for drinking in moderation, but see, for John, he was far more interested in my well-being as a new Christian than he was interested in, in being able to do whatever he liked. And so he limited his freedom so that he wouldn't stumble me. Now, I've since had my um, conscience liberated on that matter. You know, I don't really mind whether Christians drink or don't drink. But you can see why I respected John so much, because he would far prefer to limit his freedom than to cause another brother to stumble. And see, that's what this passage is actually calling us all to do. Now, just because we're free to do something doesn't mean that we should always exercise that freedom. There are some contexts where we should limit our freedom for the sake of others. The well-being of a weaker brother or sister must always come before our exercise of freedom. See, that's the order that it goes in. Just because we're free to do something doesn't mean we must always exercise our freedom. Okay, so we've got the issue of conscience. It's one thing we have to keep in mind. We also have to keep in mind the, the danger of unrestrained freedom. But there's a third thing here. And uh, the third thing we see here is the priorities of the kingdom. And this, this third point, this is actually the, the very heart of the matter when it comes to disputable matters. We have to keep in mind the priorities of the kingdom. And the way Paul structures this passage, you will have noticed I haven't just worked consecutively through it. It's because Paul has structured this passage in a special way so that he, he keeps coming back to the ideas, but there's a central idea in the passage, and he structured it so he underlines this central idea, which is verses 17 and 18. And in these verses, we see that the core issue when it comes to how we deal with disputable matters is we have to have kingdom priorities. So look at verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or, and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. See, what is the focus of God's kingdom according to this verse? It's not eating and drinking. In other words, it's the focus in God's kingdom is not making up extra rules about what you can and can't do as the weak believers tended to do. Nor is it insisting on always being able to practice your freedom regardless of how others feel about it as the strong were tempted to do. See, that's not what the kingdom is about. That's putting the focus in the wrong place. The focus of the kingdom is righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. And so these three things, righteousness, joy and peace, these are three of the blessings of the gospel. Okay, What Paul is saying here recalls his, his gospel summary back in chapter 5, verses 1 to 2, where he talks about the righteousness that we've received, which is Christ's righteousness. 
And Christ's righteousness, that's what justifies us before God. You know, the peace we have is the peace we have with God through the shed blood of our Saviour Jesus. The joy in the Holy Spirit. What is the joy of the Holy Spirit? It's the, it's the hope of eternal life that we have in Christ. That's what gives us joy. Even in suffering, we can still rejoice because we have the hope of glory. And see, all of these three things, these are all secured for us through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And see, that's what's central. That's, that's the focus of the Christian life. That's what it revolves around. Not in these other things. Okay? That should be, therefore, the focus of our lives, the focus of the life of our church, should be the focus of our relationships together. You know, just as God welcomes us as righteous in Christ, so we are to welcome each other on that basis. The joy and peace that we have in Christ is the joy and peace that should characterize our relationships together. <clears throat> See, that's, that's the focus. That's where our hearts should be. And that therefore shows us how absurd it would be that we would allow this, this gospel-shaped community to be pulled apart by practicing our freedom at the expense of others. This shows how out of step we would be if, if, our, you know, if we're flaunting our freedom in a way that has no regard for whether it helps or hinders a fellow believer you know, who might have a more sensitive conscience. Now this shows us how, how out of step we would be with the priorities of the kingdom if we always insist on our way on disputable matters. See, it's not about being right on disputable matters. It's not about being able to do what we want to do in every situation. It's about how we treat others. It's about how our actions impact on others. Now, do our actions lead to righteousness? Peace and joy in our relationships with each other. That's the priorities of the kingdom. And of course, <clears throat> we see this most clearly in Jesus himself. Because when Jesus came into this world, he didn't insist on his rights. He didn't insist on his freedom. Rather, he gladly gave all of that up in the ultimate way in order to serve us by going to the cross and dying in our place. And see, if Christ has done that for us, then surely we can give up our rights and our freedoms in order to serve one another. That's why verse 18 <clears throat> goes on to say, whoever, whoever thus serves Christ, you know, whoever serves Christ in this way, is acceptable to God and approved by men. And then verse 19 says, So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Hey, do you see how different Christ's kingdom is to the world? Because in the world, the world says, my freedom, even at the expense of others. But in Christ's kingdom, it's Christ saying to us, your salvation, even at the expense of my freedom. Do you see how different that is? Do you see how if we embrace this gospel, that that's what will bring unity? That's, that's the key. So even where we have differences of opinions, we can still have unity because we have something. We have Christ. We have his way of interacting, his way of loving, his way of building others up, his way that leads to peace. So let's embrace that and live that out.
Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his willingness to uh, die a death that he didn't deserve and to experience uh, punishment that, that wasn't meant for him but was rather meant for us. We thank you, Father, that he was willing to do that out of love, willing to have his freedoms all taken away so that we can be set free. And Father, help us to, uh, to know Christ more deeply. Help us to have our hearts uh, shaped by what he did for us. That that would then shape the way that we look at other people, that we wouldn't look at them as people to step over or people to push aside or people who are there to serve our ends. But Father, help us to be selfless like Christ. Help us to, to put aside our freedom so that we might serve. Uh, Lord, we pray that where we have uh, put ourselves first, we ask that you, you would forgive us for that and help us to start anew in this different way, this way that leads to peace and building others up, a way that, that cares deeply for where other people are at. Uh, we thank you, Father, for the examples that we've had in our own lives of, of friends who have who've been able to do that for us. And so may we be uh, that, those faithful friends too. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.